once in Belize, church had started. It was like 11.10. We started church, and the worship team struck up, and church was totally empty. And I sat down. I kind of closed my eyes. Thinking, Where is everybody at? And when worship was over, and I opened my eyes, the church was full. It's kind of like what happened this morning. <laughs> worship started, and there's like three people in here. I thought, is anybody coming today? And nope, here you all are. So good morning. I'm going to stand back up. And we are going to read this morning's passage together. Oops, one second, my device just did something weird. There we go. Hold on, hold on. Stand there and stretch out a little bit while we uh, do not know what this just did. Don't everybody staring at me now, though. Okay, give me one second here. There we go. Technology is wonderful when it works, and then when it doesn't work, it's super awkward. Everybody staring at you while you're going after stuff. Okay, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we, um, as we open your word this morning and look at these few verses as we continue through Acts, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit. You would just lead us and direct us and guide us. We pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So it says, now the full number of believers... Remember, up to this point, there were probably upwards of 15, 20,000 believers. And remember, we saw in Acts chapter 2 that a lot of the people, a lot of the believers, they were, they were foreigners who had come to visit Jerusalem for Pentecost. And so they came, <coughs> and Peter stood up, and he gave that great message, and, 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 and thousands of people got saved. So what happened is a lot of the people had decided they were going to hang around in Jerusalem for a while and, and kind of learn from the apostles and, and learn about this new faith that they'd come to. And so we saw some of this taking place at the end of Acts chapter 2, the believers taking care of one another, housing these visitors. And, and so this is kind of the scene. And remember, a bunch more people just came to faith. About 5,000 more men, Luke notes, came to faith. And the, uh, at, at the healing of the uh, crippled man. And so Luke here, he says that the whole number, the full number were of one heart and one soul. You know, I, I, I love that, that picture of unity that Luke paints there. They're of one heart and, and one soul. As they were filled with the Holy Spirit, 
And as they are following the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, they were all sort of naturally led in the same direction and walking in agreement with one another. Man, that is something that we're sorely lacking in the church today, aren't we? That one heart and, and one mind, <clears throat> that sense of unity. You know, what we see here is this group of people, they, they, they felt the same way about the things of the Lord. They thought the same way. They believed the same way in regards to the Lord, in regards to the lost, in regards to the church. As they were all sort of headed the same direction, they just grew closer and closer. And that's, I think that's the standard that we have. That's what we're striving for. But, you know, as Americans, we, we're very individualistic. It's sort of our, our cultural DNA, right? We put a lot of value on, on our rights and, and, and being individuals. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's a lot of good that comes from that. I think it's made us a, a very strong, independent people. But sometimes, because of that mindset that we have, we, we lose sight of the fact that, that we as the believers, we, we as the church, we're more than just a, a collection of, of individuals. We're, we're collectively the body of Christ. We're the church. And sometimes we talk about the church, we're talking about the, the universal church, right? We're talking about the, the, the global church, everybody who believes in Jesus Christ. And sometimes when we talk about church, we're talking about an individual church body. But regardless, we're, we're connected to one another as a body. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And of course, he's, he's talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, but I think it's applicable here. And he says in verse 17, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We need to, we need to remember this truth, that, that, that we are one, that we're individual parts, but we're part of one body. In order for a body to function, all the parts have to be working in harmony with each other. And if the parts aren't all there, aren't in the right place, it's impossible for the body to function effectively. And, you know, you might say, well, I'm the hand. And naturally, if you're the hand, you want to focus all of your resources on gloves and watches. Right? It's a little joke, but you get it, right? You want to focus your resources on the things that are going to impact you. Your first service laughed at that. They got the joke, and you guys were all like, you guys are even awake. That was funny. <laughs> but what Paul is saying is this. 
right? We need to be careful and not always be thinking about us, right? If you're a hand, fine, focus on gloves, focus on watches. But if you're the foot or the eye or the thigh, all of a sudden you're kind of getting the shaft a little bit, right? I mean, all the folk, all the all the resources need to be be spread apart, and that's what Paul's talking about here. That we need to recognize that we're one, and that there needs to be unity within the church. And, and I think that's talking globally. You know, there needs to be unity within you know the church in the U.S. and the church in Mexico and the church in Paraguay. But also, he's talking denominationally. I think you know there are certainly differences between the Pentecostal church and and the Reformed Church. There's certainly differences between, between Calvary and the Nazarenes, but there's enough that we share in common that we, can, that we can fellowship and that we can have unity with one another. And certainly within individual churches, we need to, to focus on that, on that unity, on, on that oneness that we have. And that's what we start to see unfold in, in these next few verses. And... Um, just this morning, as I was, I was sitting in my office, and it was kind of early, and I was reading through my notes, and, um, and I realized that, that I kind of missed something that I wanted to touch on. It's something that, that's kind of important, I think, concerning where we are as a people and as a culture today, right? We are living in a time when, and I feel like there are forces that, that for whatever reason are, are really trying to, to bring division within our country whether it's politically the right or the left or whether it's racially or whatever. They're, they're trying to, to, to divide. And I don't know what the end is. But, but man, it, there's something that has to happen here. And to be sure, there are legitimate racial inequities in our country. There's issues in our country that need to be rectified. There are injustices that need to be addressed. But I feel like there's this, this push by I don't know who. It's the boogeyman or it's the, it's the Illuminati or, or I don't know what it is. But somebody is trying to, to bring in division in our country. And, you know, I, I'm half white. And I feel like half of me is deeply ashamed of itself for that, right? And it's weird, not really. But, you know, that's kind of what we're told. If you're, if you're a certain race, you need to be, you know, it's, it's just, just all this stuff that's going on, and, and we're constantly getting hit by that. And, and those divisions are starting to, to creep into the church a little bit. And I hear people sometimes say things like, you know, oh, I, I'm colorblind, you know, in regards to race. And first, being colorblind is a deficiency, right? Being colorblind is not a good thing, right? If you're, if you're talking literally about being colorblind, right, if you can only see black and white and gray and green, you're missing out on, on the whole spectrum of God's creation, right? It's not a good thing to be colorblind. And, and I think the same is true when people say in, re, in regards to race, oh, oh I'm colorblind. Really? You can't see that I'm brownish. You can't see that half my kids are white and half my kids are black. There's a little East Indian in there. You, you can't see those things. We don't need to be colorblind. 
We need to embrace our differences. We need to, to celebrate our shades, celebrate the, the diversity that the Lord has created among us. You know, we have people here who are black, people here who are Hispanic, who are Asian. And we're different from one another. And that's okay. In fact, it's not okay. It's, it's glorious. And it's, and it's wonderful. And I think that we do a, a disservice to ourselves and to the Lord when we try to pretend that, that we're all the same. And, oh, I'm colorblind. All that stuff. I think that's wrong. I have a friend in Belize. And he, um, he's an American guy, but he's a black guy. And he um, was living in this retirement community. And it's mostly rich, retired Americans there. And he was telling me how one day one of the other retirees, this older white guy, came up to him and said, you know, I don't even think of you as black. And my friend said, you know, that is like, it's like the most offensive thing you could say to me. Because I am black, he said. I'm, I'm proud of, of who the Lord made me. You know, and, and you not recognizing that in your colorblindness, not recognizing me for who the Lord made me to be, that's, that's offensive. The Lord made each one of us unique and special and wonderful. He made each one of us with the exact level of, of melanin that he wanted us to have. Hey, you remember the old children's song, right? Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow, black and white. And I get that that's kind of on PC now, right? You can't call Indians red anymore. You can't say Asians are yellow and, and it disenfranchises Latinos because they're underrepresented in the song. And I get all of that. But isn't the heart of what that song is saying glorious? That each one of us are precious in his sight. Each one of us is created in the image of God. We're created in his likeness. And listen, that is the true basis of racial equality and racial unity. Recognizing that each one of us is an image bearer of God. And if the church is ever truly going to be of one heart and one mind, if we're ever truly going to be of one accord, we have to recognize that. We have to recognize our, our, our differences. We have to celebrate our differences. We have to, to celebrate the fact that, that God is wonderfully creative. And he made each one of us special and unique. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own. But they had everything in common. Now... You know, there's plenty of people who have used this verse sort of as a, an example of communism. See, the Bible supports communism. Jesus was a communist and, and all this kind of stuff. That's not what we're talking about here. Communism takes away from people. Communism takes what you have and takes it for myself. Right? This says that they had all things in common. And that word common is koinos. You know, we talk about the Bible being written in Koine Greek. Koine, that word koinos, it just means common. And if you've been around church for any amount of time, you, you've probably heard the, the term koinia. You know, it means fellowship. But what it means is to share or to have in common. All right, so communism, it, it takes away. 
But koinonia, it gives away. And I hope you can see the difference there. Right? There was no compulsion in what's going on here. Right? The apostles didn't have everybody in the church fill out a list of all of their assets. They didn't have people give their credit card numbers and their routing numbers. Right? They didn't come door to door making sure that you had given your tithe that week. People gave because they wanted to give. People gave because they loved the church and they loved God's people. Now, I don't know how many of you guys are parents, but any of you guys who observe a kid for more than three minutes, you know that what's going on here in Acts 4 isn't a natural thing, right? Not to count your possessions as your own. Man, you should see the crazy stuff that my little ones argue over and, and fight over and, and bicker over. It's just, it's constant all the time. You know, I'll give something to one of them and the others will come and, how come I didn't get it? It's not fair. And I think I told you guys this last week. From now on, whenever they say that to me, how come Eva got that and I didn't? I always say, it's because she's my favorite. How come Isaiah got that? He's my favorite. Right? And they just, man, shuffle and go away. But that's just kind of human nature. I remember once, I think I've told this story before, but um, we were up from Belize visiting, and Elias is like five years old at the time, and, and he had a cousin, Bella, who was four. And we're sitting on the front porch of my parents' house, and my dad back there, being the, the funny guy that he is, he says, hey, Isaiah, I got a present, or Elias, I got a present for you. And, and he picked up the first thing that his hand touched. And it was this supply line for a hot water heater. And Elias looks at it like, what do I want that for? But then my other cousin was all of a sudden jealous that Elias got the supply line and she didn't get it. So all weekend long, they're fighting about the supply line. And Elias didn't even want it until she wanted it. And then he wasn't letting it go. And I think, did you end up having to get another supply line for Bella to stop the war? He had to go buy a new supply line. Something that neither of them wanted, but just the other person wanted it. And you know, that's how we are. That's sort of human nature. We're, we're very possessive over our possessions, aren't we? Right? We want to continue to possess our possessions. That's why we have locks on our doors. That's why we have alarms on our cars. Because we want to maintain possession of our stuff. Right? That's sort of just how we're built. But we see here the Lord is moving a very unique way in Acts chapter 4. And I'm not, I don't think that this is a command for all the church for all time to go sell all your stuff and give it to the church. But there is occasion for it sometimes. And we saw that in Calvary's history in the 60s. A lot of these people were, were, were coming to the Lord and, and they all kind of lived together in these communal homes and, and shared their possessions. And, and for that period in time, it was a beautiful thing. But I, you know, I don't think that we're called to live like that all the time, but I think that there are, are lessons that universally apply. There's principles that universally apply. Things that, that, we can, that we can put to work in our lives. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony 
to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. During this time, the apostles were operating in a, in a unique, special, powerful way. We see the apostles were teaching and they're preaching. They were sharing the things that they had seen and heard. They're recounting the things that Jesus had taught them. They're recounting the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Basically, they're, they're having church service right here, right? Evangelism and Bible study. They were teaching believers the word of God. They're sharing the gospel, sharing their testimony with those who weren't yet believers. And we see as, as they're doing these things, it was a, it was a powerful combination, right? When, when spirit-filled people are, are proclaiming the word of God and sharing their testimony, it's a, it's a powerful thing. The knowledge of the word of God and experiencing his power in your life, that's powerful. And we see that throughout the book of Acts, throughout church history. When spirit-filled believers teach the word of God accurately and share their testimonies, things happen. Revivals happen. Movements of God take place. You know, we, we look around our country right now, and it's, it's easy to kind of feel discouraged, isn't it? Sometimes it's like, man, I think we're, just, we're too far gone at this point. But I'll tell you this, we are no worse than Rome was. We're no worse than, than Corinth was. We're no worse than Greek culture. Nineveh in the Old Testament was utterly depraved, a wicked, cruel people so much that Jonah didn't even want to go to preach there because he was afraid they might repent and get saved. And he didn't want that because they were so wicked. But remember, he went and preached and they repented. And they turned from their sin, and the Lord spared them. And when the word of God goes forth, revival breaks out. We saw it in Rome and Greece and Nineveh here. Throughout church history, over and over again, God moving in amazing, powerful ways when spirit-filled believers preach the word. When the people of God seek the face of God, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they teach the Word of God and share their experiences of God. Things happen, and, and lives are, are transformed. And look what it says here in the last line of verse 33. And great grace was upon them. That, that's what we're talking about here. And in Galatians 5.16, Paul, and, and I know that this is a, a little kind of out of context, but again, I, think it, I don't think it does the text injustice. He says, that, he says that, walk in the flesh, and you, I should have wrote the Bible verse, it skipped my mind all of a sudden. Walk in the flesh, and you sh or walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And when he says that there, I know I've talked about this before, but when he says walk in the spirit, he uses this word peripateo. And that word, it means to conduct yourself in a certain way, to behave in a certain way. And also can mean just to walk, to go from here to there. But later on in verse 24, he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also keep step in the Spirit. And some of your older translations say, if you are alive in the Spirit, therefore walk in the Spirit. 
And that word there, walk, is a different word than was used in, in verse 16. This word is stoiko. And it means to walk, but it has kind of a different implication. It can mean like to walk in cadence, like, like, a, like a military procession. Or it can mean to walk in a line, like, like little ducklings walking after their mom. And I've said this before, I think the idea here is sort of taking baby steps in the Spirit, right? You, you, you begin to walk in the Spirit. And I think what Paul is saying is, look, as you begin to walk in the Spirit, you're going to fail. You're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. It's okay. Get up and start walking again. Hannah is almost eight months old, and um, she... About two weeks ago, she started crawling, and, uh, you know, she's at first, she's just barely kind of moving, and she'd end up actually going backwards on accident, and now she's getting pretty mobile, and she's been doing this thing where she starts to, to climb up coffee tables, and she'll be standing there, where all of a sudden, she'll freeze and, and freak out because she doesn't know how to sit back down, and then she'll, she'll either cry till somebody helps her, or she'll fall down, right, and in the next month, she's going to start to stand up a little bit, and she'll take a, a step or two, and then she'll fall, and then she'll take four steps, and she'll fall, then she'll take ten steps, and before long, we're going to be chasing her all over the place, right, and, and that's kind of the idea in our spiritual life. When you're a babe in Christ, and you begin to walk in the Spirit, you're going to mess up, you're going to fail, you're going to make mistakes. But as you grow in the Lord and you continue to walk in the Spirit, you're going to get stronger and stronger. Listen to how the message paraphrases this verse. He says, Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. And this isn't a translation. This is kind of a paraphrase. But, but I like what he's talking about there. He says, don't hold it as an idea in your head or a sentiment in your heart. Work out its implication in every detail of your lives. This, this idea of walking in the Spirit, it should impact Every part of our lives as believers. And when we do all these things that Paul or that Luke writes in Acts chapter 2, when we're in the word, when we're in prayer, when we're in worship, when we're in fellowship, when we're doing the things that we see here in Acts 4, when we're sharing the gospel, when we're teaching the word, when we're sharing the things that the Lord has done, he says that great, great grace will be upon us. And it will flow through us to those around us. Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, and again, I know this is a little different context that he's saying this in, but he says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And some of your translations say that it, it may impart grace to the hearer. And the idea is this. As we begin to live in the Spirit, as we begin to walk in the Spirit, His grace will be upon us. And it will begin to, to, to flow through us. 
And as we walk in spirit, that we're going to have so much of the Lord's grace on us that it's going to, that it's going to impart to those around us, to those we're sharing with and ministering to. He goes on in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were, own, were owners of lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Last week, we were talking about the Lord's sovereignty. We're talking about trusting in His will and His plan for our lives, even when we don't understand what's going on, even when we, when we can't even begin to fathom what the outcome is going to be. Trusting that, that God is good and that he's in control and that he knows what we need. And, and I remember last week as I was up here and I was talking about that and I was, I was teaching that, the Lord began to convict me a little bit in an area of my life that, that I wasn't really surrendering to him. An area that I wasn't really trusting him fully in. And, and frankly, it was an area that I was lacking faith in. And without going into details, this week the Lord really moved in my life. And he began to, to meet a huge need in our lives. And, and even more than that, in a very profound way, he reminded Denise and I that he is still on the throne. And he's still in control. Very much in an Acts chapter 4 kind of way. And listen, let me preface that by saying... Don't, don't get concerned about me. It wasn't anything to do with not having the money to buy diapers or, or anything, anything like that. You know, nobody needs to come and slip me a 20 after church. I, I'll take it if you want to, but I don't. <laughs> anyway. but, but it was this. It was the Spirit of God moving among his people, taking care of the needs of the people. And the Lord was speaking to my heart in that, saying, look, you, you remember you were in this exact situation five times when you lived in Belize. And every single time I handled the situation, why are you still doubting? Why are you still lacking in faith? I'm kind of like, oh, you're right, Lord, I'm sorry. But I want you to see What's happening here in these verses? The church was taking care of the church. The people of God were taking care of the people of God. And it wasn't out of compulsion. The apostles didn't stand up and say, listen guys, here's what we're going to do. This week I want you to go and sell everything that you have and next week I want you to come up here and you're going to lay it all on the stage. Right? That, that's not what was going on at this point. They weren't saying, look, we need to control your finances because we know what's best for you. We'll be making all of your financial decisions from now on. Now listen, there are plenty of churches that are like that. And, and we call those cults usually. Right? That, that's not a good thing. There are plenty of, of, of charlatans out there who do stuff like this. You know, give us all of your stuff because God has placed us and authority over you. And that's not what we see here in the book of Acts. It was the people of God being moved by the Spirit of God. 
And they were getting rid of stuff that they could live without in order to advance the kingdom. And nothing was done out of compulsion, and no one was required to do it. The Lord put it on their hearts, and they did it. It wasn't because they had to. It was because they wanted to. Now, I've been asked countless times if I believe that the tithe is still for today. And not always, but usually people are asking this. What's the minimum that I have to give? Right? That, that's what it is. They're treating it like April 15th. They're treating it like tax day. Right? It's something that they, that they have to do. Do I really have to give 10% of my money to the Lord? Is it, they're asking, is, is this something we can negotiate? Can I start at 2.5%? Maybe the Holy Spirit will, will, will counter off for me at 9.3 and we'll meet in the middle somewhere. Now, I don't think that the tithe is an obligation that the church is held to today. But I think that that is a good guideline for us. I think it's probably a good place for us to start thinking in regards to our giving. But I guess I think that a single working professional with a lot of discretionary spending, a lot of discretionary disposable income, right? They should probably give more than an unemployed single mom who can't afford papers, right? It, it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? But I think in regards to giving, each one of us needs to listen to the Holy Spirit and to be faithful to what he's calling us to do. But let me say this also. I'm going to read this quote from Billy Graham, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good check for our hearts. He said this, The checkbook is a theological document. It will tell you who and what you worship. Let me read that again. A checkbook is a theological document. It will tell you who and what you worship. It's kind of convicting, isn't it? How we spend our resources tells us a lot about where our hearts are. Mark Driscoll once said this. He said, the Holy Spirit isn't trying to get the money out of your hand. He's trying to get the idol out of your heart. And the idea there is this. This whole thing about giving, it isn't God trying to get your money. Jesus isn't sitting up there on the throne at the right hand of God with his little accountant's visor on and his little calculator, you know, pushing all the buttons and the, and the thing coming out. He's not, he's not trying to figure out if we're going to have enough offering today to, to pay the water bill in heaven so that the rivers of life can keep on flowing, right? That's not what's going on. This topic of giving, it isn't for him. This giving, it's, it's for us. It allows us to engage in what the Lord is doing. It allows us to make sacrifices on behalf of the kingdom. It affords us an opportunity to root out the idolatry in our hearts, to keep our love of money in check. Because frankly, for all of us, I think, that can be an issue sometimes. 
And we're going to end off here because I don't want to get into the Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. And I realize it's kind of an odd place to cut off the Bible study. But let me say this as we close. And this has been said many different ways, many different times by many different people. But it's something like this. Don't love money and use people. Love people and use money. Use the resources that the Lord has blessed you with to advance the kingdom of God. Use the resources the Lord has given you to to foster unity within the church, to help those in need within the church and in your communities at large. Be a blessing. And as you continue to bless people with the resources the Lord has given you, He'll continue to bless you. And again, it's not a a pyramid scheme. It's not a retirement scheme. It's not giving $1,000 so you can get $10,000 back. It's not sowing seeds so you can buy a boat. or It's none of those things. But it's as we continue to be a blessing, the Lord continues to bless us so that we can continue to be a blessing. And we get to share in that blessing. And we will be blessed far more than we are able to bless other people. Right? We, we're storing up rewards in heaven. We, we, we get to reap great benefits as we, as we serve the Lord in this way. So I just want to close with this. Love God. Love His people. Strive for unity. And strive to be a blessing to those that the Lord has placed in your life. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you that you give us an opportunity just to serve you and to be a part of the work that you're doing, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would help us just to be faithful to, to strive for unity within the church, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to be good stewards with the things that you've blessed us with and just to be responsible citizens in the, in the kingdom of heaven. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, One more announcement. I don't think Jen mentioned this before we continue in worship. Um, Be watching your email. If the weather is good, we're thinking about having church next week, just one service outside in the parking lot. So so be watching, and we'll let you know what's going to happen with that. But I hope it works out. It's going to be cool.